Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. years old in June of 1989. There was a British journalist by the name of T.D. Allman, and he was on the balcony in his hotel in Beijing. He was watching out this as this incredible story was unfolding below. There were pro-democracy student protesters who were crowding a place called Tiananmen Square. I bet you've heard of this place. And the government was beginning to fight back. There were these uh, military tanks and, 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 and all sorts of, of people coming in to squash the protests, to try to push them out, intimidate them out. And that's when Allman, as he was up on top of the balcony, he captured this picture, one of the most recognizable pictures of the 20th century, as this unknown protester calmly stands in defiance in front of the tanks. And history is really unsure of what happened to this man. There's no knowledge of whether he was arrested or killed. No one really knows who he was. But his bravery, his defiance, it's created this incredible, incredible image that still sticks with us today. And as we gather during this season of Advent, we often return to this, uh, these beautiful promises like we were reading earlier in Isaiah chapter 11, our text for today, that point us forward to the birth of Christ. And I don't know about you, but when I hear these words, when I hear the scriptures during uh, Christmas season, during the Advent season, sometimes it's very, it feels like the packaging is very Hallmark card, sort of, you know, very soft lighting and beautiful and glitter and things like that. But when you read what we just read earlier in Isaiah chapter 11, it's far less like a Hallmark card and far more like a revolutionary manifesto, far more like the man standing in front of the take. Uh, he's willing to go out and defy the powers of empire, the powers of oppression that stand in front of him. That's what we're reading in these Christmas prophecies. There is a new kind of kingdom that's breaking into this world, and there is a new kind of king that is arriving. And that's what the people of God heard and longed for as they heard these words from Isaiah chapter 11. Look with me in the first couple of verses here again on the screen, and then we're going to pray. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Father, as we move into the study of your scriptures, the proclaiming of your story today, may all of the different stories and struggles that we bring into a room like this be found in light of it. May we hold on to that longing and hope that Advent offers us every single year, the anticipation the ability to both lament and to sing with joy, all in the same breath. So, Lord, speak today through your word. Speak and allow us to be formed into the image of Jesus. Allow us to be formed into the kind of people who are ready for your coming. 
We pray this in your name. Amen. So this phrase, the stump of Jesse, is a strange phrase. I, it took all, everything in me not to try to bring a Christmas stump in here and decorate it this week, but I, that was a lot of work. I wanted to try to find something. I thought that would be so much fun. But this is a weird picture. Of all, there's plenty of weird pictures in the Old Testament, obviously, the stump of Jesse, it's an odd one, and it's pointing backward to the story of God. So when they're hearing this, they're remembering a particular point in the biblical narrative. Jesse is the father of who? King David. And David was supposed to be the beginning of this long line of kings who would rule with righteousness and justice over Israel. And those who would come after them were supposed to represent God's authority and God's will on earth. But if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you know that that didn't exactly work out very well. Didn't work out at all. But kings weren't actually God's plan A. First Samuel 8, the prophet Samuel, he's approached by the people of God. He's getting old, and here's what they say to him. It says, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, you are old, sick burn there. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, but when they, they said give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not that they have rejected you that they've rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Ouch. Much like the golden calf, the Israelites, what they wanted here, they wanted a figurehead. They wanted a mascot. They wanted someone who represented, like they said, just like all the other nations of the world. They were rejecting God who was present with them in the present and in their past and in their future as their king. And at the end of the story, God warns them through Samuel. He says, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now, did Israel listen? No. They still cried out for that king. The first king that came along was a man named King Saul, and he was drunk on his own power and eventually died at the hands of his own sword. And yet during that reign, God sends Samuel to anoint a son of this, this man named Jesse. He goes, and there's a lot of really good-looking, tall uh, you know, expecting, you know, those are the kind of people you would want as a king, but he picks the youngest, the most unlikely, this man by the name of David. Now, was David a good king? Uh, you know, yes and no. There's good, there's bad, there's much that good that came from David's kingship, but he was far from perfect. Uh, there's some, you know, murder and, and Bathsheba, some things like that that really sully the water there. There was many good things about David. He wrote a lot of our Psalms, but David was also a deeply, deeply flawed man. And yet God promises David that he carry on his kingdom line through him. Second Samuel 7 says, the Lord declares to you, speaking to David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
beautiful promise. And by all accounts, the expectation was that David's son Solomon would fulfill this. Now, let's talk about Solomon. Solomon was a hot mess. Solomon was very wise, as we know, but there's also some things about like 700 concubines and enslaving your own people. And it's very ironic that a people whose story begins being rescued out of slavery, their king, the king they asked for, becomes the very thing that they try to escape. King Solomon was a mess. And his sons and sons and sons after that, there were dozens of kings we hear about in the Old Testament out of this. And you probably count on one hand the number of them who did right in the eyes of the Lord. Most of them were bad. Most of them did not leverage their power for justice and wholeness. Most of them did not represent the kingdom and the kingship that God desired. Everything that he promised about the warning of what would happen came true. And in fact, when Isaiah wrote these words in, in, in Isaiah 11 here we're reading today, he was doing so during this time and in response to a king by the name of Ahaz. Now, Ahaz was almost probably at the top of the worst kings we read about in the Old Testament. This guy was an awful, awful king. He completely turns away from God. He, he begins to encourage the worship of idols among his people. He makes alliance with the Assyrian oppressors who are incredibly violent. And he even sacrifices his own children to false gods in the valley of of Hinnom. Now, the Valley of Hinnom would come to be known as Gehenna. Gehenna is the word we see in the New Testament for hell. Ahaz literally made his people live in a hell on earth. He was an awful king. He was everything you wanted to avoid when you had a leader. He upheld and even encouraged exploitation and injustice at every single turn. And in the chapter right before what we read today, Isaiah is giving God's warning to the kings like Ahaz who choose to make these decisions. He says, woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows, they pray, and robbing fathers. This is why the picture we get today is the stump of Jesse, because there is incredible judgment, but at the same time, hope. It's a stump because God has cut down what he promised in David. God has taken an axe to the oppressive and idolatrous regime that Ahaz had represented so well. And soon after this, this line of kings, as we know, would completely end. Jerusalem would be destroyed. The temple would be destroyed. And they would be carried off into exile. Judgment was on the way as these words were being prophesied. Which makes you think, why would God promise David something and then take it away? I mean, we're supposed to wonder here, I think, as we read these words, God, are you not going to keep your promise? You told us that you would give us this king, this line of kingship that would actually bring about your kingdom representation on this world as we longed for it to be. And somehow, you've just cut that off. 
Why? We're in exile. We're now living under another violent, oppressive regime. This is not the kingdom forever that you promised, God. This is not the glory that you promised. And because of that, all there is left is a stump. All there is left is a sign of what once was. A sign of that something big and beautiful and glorious used to be here. But yet, it's not just a stump. There's a tiny, tiny shoot of life breaking through in that stump. And those same roots, it says, out of those same roots that God himself planted, something new is growing out of barren ground. Isaiah's teaching us something that we, in our modern, western, very affluent, safe world, sometimes find it hard to see, and that is that judgment is actually good news. Judgment is good news. How? How is that? It's because the judgment of God actually opens the door for justice to be done. And justice, when God brings about justice, the world is being made into the world that we longed for it to be in the first place. You see, if you're living under the yoke of oppression, if you are a suffering people, you're being exploited by the powerful. If you are suffering and you have no power to do anything about it, guess what? Judgment gives you hope because finally someone will fight for us. Finally, someone will see our plight. Finally, in the midst of my suffering where I feel like I can't do anything at all, there is one in power who will reach down and rescue me. For the people of God, as they heard these words of Isaiah, they heard good news when they heard judgment was coming. Judgment meant that there is one who stands on my side one who advocates for my needs, one who is present with me in my suffering and is not far away and oblivious to what I face. It's why the Bible is filled with cries for justice because they're longing for God as a good and righteous judge to come and make the world as we have always longed for, to be judge, justice and judgment. It speaks to being made right and whole. That's when the Bible talks about justice, that's what it actually means. The word in the Old Testament and the New Testament for justice and righteousness are the same thing. Being right with God and right with our neighbor bring about the same form of justice. To be just and right with God is then to be just and right with my neighbor. Judgment brings what we are longing for in this world, not what we are afraid of. And the world is on the other side that we're looking for is a world that only comes as God in his righteous judgment brings about all things made new. Which is exactly what Isaiah is promising here. He says, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. And with justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. What we're seeing here is a reality. I think I, I, I'm not stretching when I say it's still alive today, that the poor and the powerless are judged more by perception than reality, aren't they? A lot of times those who are poor are being judged by what other people are saying. 
or just by the perception that you see on the outside. They are impacted by what others see and what others say far more than anyone else. And they're often, in that case, voiceless in their suffering. They cannot defend themselves. Other people are speaking on their behalf to their behest. And on top of that, they lack the wealth and the influence to inhibit the justice from being done with equity. I don't think it's a stretch to say this is still a problem, is it not? It's still harder for those who are poor and suffering and powerless to receive the justice that they are longing for, the justice that the Messiah is bringing. It's right there in verse 4, this Hebrew word for righteousness we see here, my sure, it means a level ground, meaning justice is providing for all people a level, equitable opportunity to experience the goodness of God where they are. That's the picture of what the Messiah brings as he comes. This is not a justice that is retributional. It's equity. It's bringing all people to the equal footing at the cross and allowing everyone to experience the goodness of God right where we are and not just those who life has placed somehow at the front of the line. This is the world as we long for, as we hope for, the wholeness of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus taught us to pray. When you're praying for those things, you're actually praying, whether you know it or not, you're praying for the judgment of God. God's judgment, it's a function of his restoring work, not retribution, restoration, work in removing all the things that stand in the way of wholeness and goodness and life. It is not retribution or destruction. It is restoration. What we see when we renovate homes, which I have been a part of sometimes, usually the best thing I'm good at is demolition because I'm not very skilled in other ways. There's a couple people in this room that would amen that. But when you're we're renovating a home or when you're redoing your kitchen or your bathroom, what's the first thing you have to do? You have to tear out all that is old, all that is not worth keeping anymore, all that stands in the way of the newness and the life that you want it to be. You have to tear down before you build back what is being restored. God is only tearing down what is going to be built and restored in the end. We cannot have this view of God's judgment that is simply destruction. God's judgment in the scriptures in its fullness is wholeness, is life. It's the world as we long for it to be. I love the message paraphrase here, verse 5. It says, his words will bring everyone to all attention. A mere breath from his lips will topple the wicked. Each morning he'll pull, put, pull on sturdy work clothes and boots and build righteousness and faithfulness in the land. One of the biggest problems that we face as we understand this idea of God's judgment is that for many of us, when we hear judgment, we hear condemnation. To be judgmental is to stand over another in superiority. It is to devalue another. It is to dehumanize other people when we talk about judgment as if there is only condemnation in this. And it's a view that I know is sadly upheld by many of our experiences with Christians in the past. When they talk about judgment, they do so from a posture of standing above and over others. Many people cannot and probably feel uncomfortable with the very notion of God being a good judge because of how judgmental they have experienced Christians to be. 
I won't ask you to name names or raise your hand this morning, but I bet you you've had experiences. When you hear judgment, you hear condemnation. And yet when Jesus speaks about his coming in John 3, right after John 3, 16, he tells Nicodemus, he says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. I want, to, I want you to hear that again because that's huge. Let this be foundational for your understanding of the character of God. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Do you see what's happening here? When Jesus speaks of the judgment that is coming in his kingdom, he does not speak of condemnation. He speaks of restoration. He does not speak of destruction or retribution. He speaks of things being made whole. Do you see how this is good news? Do you? And yet, every time the Bible speaks of this, when it's talking about God coming in this way, the Messiah, the stump, the shoot out of the stump, he gives one clear command to us. He says to be ready. Through parables, through prophecies, our, our response to the coming of the Messiah and this judgment that he's bringing to make all things new. The Bible over and over and over again tells us you need to be ready. Not withering in fear, but waiting in expectation. So often, growing up when I heard about Jesus is coming, it was in the terms of Jesus is coming and you better get your crap together because he is mad. But the people that wrote the Old Testament, the people who wrote and lived the New Testament together, when they talked about the coming of Jesus, they talked about being ready as a place of hope, as a place of longing for the world as it is supposed to be. They were looking at Revelation 21 where it says there's more, no more mourning or crying or death or pain. God would wipe away every tear from our eyes. A future where God not only stands up for the poor and the powerless, but actually lifts them up out of their despair once and for all. This is a future where the judgment of God is like a refiner's fire that removes everything that stands in the way from the wholeness and the goodness of life. And it tells us then to be ready for that. And we show ourselves to be ready through aligning our present lives, where we live today, with what our future hope actually is. We show ourselves to be ready by deciding in the here and now, I'm going to live what the future is bringing. This starts with and in and through repentance. Repentance is aligning our hearts with the story of God and the way that we anticipate Jesus' coming, knowing that what is ahead is actually bringing my good, my wholeness, the world's wholeness. And so knowing my future, I live and form a family of believers in light of the future hope that I have. Romans 13, 11, and 12 say that, and, and, and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. 
Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now again, you can hear these verses and hear Jesus is coming. Watch out. Or you can hear them as they were meant to be heard and hear Jesus is coming. Everything that we're aching for and longing for and hoping for is going to be made new, so be ready for that. Jesus is coming not as a reason for fear, but Jesus is coming, and that is a reason of hope. That's the story we see throughout the Scriptures. Instead, we come to believe this Messiah who is making the world all things new again, as he promised in Revelation. And I want, I want us as a church, I want myself to be aligned with that world that is coming. Repentance, instead of being a scary word about how we're horrible and worthy of condemnation, repentance then in light of this becomes an opportunity to align our lives with the hope that we already have for our future. Repentance is as hopeful as we could possibly imagine as we look forward to what's coming. Secondly, though, we show ourselves to be ready by the world that we build for our neighbors. Because the future that awaits us is not just, as we've said over and over again, a, a future of saving our souls for heaven, but the renewal of all creation, the Bible speaking of the healing of the nations. The future that awaits us is one where the Messiah brings what we promised, what we see promised today in Isaiah 11, where the poor and the powerless, they find justice and peace, where the widow and the orphan and the outcast, they are welcomed and loved. That is our future. So why shouldn't it be our present, right? Are you all there? Why shouldn't it be our present? First Peter 2.12 says, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. And, and then if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and then they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Wait, hold on. Why would people who don't believe in God want to honor God when he comes to judge? That, that, that doesn't make sense. Unless, unless the people who don't believe in him and follow him have seen the future lived out in the present. And finally, as Jesus comes to judge the world, they say, you've been living it all along. You've been trying to show me with your life together. This is what the future that awaits us. And so I glorify the God who has come through and in the life that I've already seen in his people together. You've been the good news. You've lived out your future here in the present. You've made it visible for me, and I glorify God, not out of fear, but out of hope that the hope has always been available to me because I've seen it in your lives. I've seen it in your story. How different is this from a faith and a church that talks about the coming judgment of God as a means to put up a wall instead of a means to welcome people in? Instead of a means to say, this is what my hope is for the future. This is how I will live in the present. And you don't have to wait. You can find it now. You can live it together with us in, 
imperfect but hopeful ways as we walk towards our future together. I want to be ready. I want to show the world that we're ready, not to separate, but to welcome, to engage with love. So I want to pray for us today as we move into a time of communion. And what I've been praying all week, too, is because the idea of judgment is such a heavy topic, and maybe we've had background issues with Christians or church where judgment has been used as a hammer, has been used as a bludgeon. I want to pray that today the Holy Spirit enlivens the words of the scriptures to help you see the wholeness and the hope that awaits you as we talk about this coming Messiah that's making everything new. When we celebrate communion together, we do so. We have some elements here on the table. We have some in the lobby as well. Represents the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for our sins. Each week we do this to remember that God has made all things new in the cross and that he is bringing about the future into the present as we worship together. May this time be a challenge to step into the hope of your future in the present as we worship together. So Father, thank you for being a just and righteous judge who stands on behalf of the poor and the powerless and the suffering, who brings about justice and equity in our world. And so today, I want to be, I want to be ready. I want to be ready not from fear. I want to be ready from hope. One day, your word promises you will make all things new. You will wipe away every tear from our eye. You will put an end to death, to sickness, cancer, to division, hatred, racism, to sin and suffering all around us. You will put an end to it. And until then, God, we live with that advent hope and longing for what is to come. And we align our lives, our love for God and for neighbor, with the coming of the King. We cry out for that now. We pray this in Jesus' name.